This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by L.L. Bean, which happens to know what the people in your life want for gifts this year. Do you want to know? It's the same thing everyone wants. They want to be cozy. And L.L. Bean has hundreds of the softest, snuggliest, most comfortable gifts ever. The stuff that makes you go, ooh, when you finally unwrap the present and feel it for the first time. And then your nephews want to feel it because obviously it's really great. And then you never see that gift again because they've stolen away to some far corner of the house to play a game in which they spend a lot of time petting your new slippers. The ones with the 100% premium Australian shearling wool lining. Or maybe it's a new down jacket filled with L.L. Bean's down-tech PFC-free water-repellent down, which your significant other immediately borrows because they're cold right then, and then always seems to be already wearing that jacket anytime you're about to go outside. So you never get to use that one either. The point is, there comes a time when the only way to be cozy yourself is to make sure the people around you are already cozy. So get them what they want this year at LLBean.com. LLBean. Be an outsider. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is The Outside Podcast. If you were to associate a type of music with nature, what would it be? Maybe something acoustic or peaceful or meditative. That's what big music companies think, at least. When I type nature into Spotify or Apple Music and scroll through the playlists, here's what I get. Nature meditation. Nature sounds for sleep. Bird sounds. Piano sleep music. Rainforest sounds. Nature spa. Baby sleep aid. Not to be confused with calm baby soothing harp. One of our favorites here at the podcast, Didgeridoo Dreamtime. There's also some classic rap from Naughty by Nature, but you know, keywords. Anyway, the point is, while nature is associated with tranquility for many people, nature is often anything but. It can be barbaric, dissonant, and downright heavy metal. Consider the great gray shrike, a.k.a. the butcher bird, a cute little songbird that impales its prey on thorns and rips them into pieces for eating. Sometimes, they leave prey skewered and rotting for days, waiting for defensive toxins to subside from the corpse until they feast on the remains. This is not didgeridoo dream time. So today, we present two different stories that realign nature with its thrasher tendencies. One involves an encounter with a wild predator that called for the emergency deployment of Metallica. After that, we hear from a professional hard rocker who became the unlikely hero of a shipwrecked crew. Our first piece comes from Denise Gallant, who takes us into the woods of Vancouver Island, British Columbia. You might have seen brief reports about her experience with a cougar this past summer. When we posted a short interview with her on Outside Online, it blew up our site. But I promise you, it's worth hearing her tell her full story in her own words. My name is Denise Gallant. Everyone calls me D. Um, I'm from Shimanis, BC, and I'm a workforce advisor for the Forestry Council. It was uh, end of July, and I, in the evening, usually go and take my dog for a walk or a hike. And um, it was getting a little bit dusky, so usually I stay a bit closer to home when it starts to get, you know, sundown. But um, this time I thought, oh, I'm going to go out on my old faithful trail that I like, and it's an old logging road. My dog's named Murphy, and he is an eight-year-old 
Husky Retriever Cross. Um, he's about 115 pounds, and he is uh, his own person. He doesn't listen uh, most of the time, and uh, he's quite reactive to other dogs, but he loves people and kids, and apparently he doesn't pay any attention to cougars. <laughs> Um, I got out and I started up the trail a couple kilometers with my dog. And I just, I kind of had this really weird feeling that something was watching me. You just have this sort of, the hair goes back up on the back of your neck and you can kind of feel, um, you just get that like shiver kind of, something's behind me and it just makes you want to turn around. And so I kind of looked over to my right and I saw this brown and I thought, my first thought was, oh, it's a deer. And then I thought, no, that's the wrong color. And then, I, oh, that's a cougar. And then, oh, that's a cougar. You know, I thought that was really neat was my first thought because you don't often see a cougar. Um, I've seen cougars before, but usually just the tail end of them running off into the bush. And I had my dog on a leash um, and normally he barks at things, but he didn't even notice the cougar at all. <laughs> He was kind of sniffing around the bushes and looking for bunnies and not really paying attention because the wind was going the wrong way. But then I noticed he was coming towards me. So he was crouched down, he was prowling, he had his bum up in the air and he was walking like actually towards me. That's when my heart went, um, this is not a good situation. I don't want to say that I wasn't scared, but I didn't feel scared in the moment. Like I felt like I, I was fairly calm. I had it kind of under control, I thought. If he hadn't stopped coming towards me, I probably would have been a lot more scared. I volunteer for a wildlife recovery center, so I actually deal with a lot of wildlife. So I transport, uh, rescue and transport, and then take them to the vet or to the rehab facility, and then um, help with the releases sometimes, and um, all different kinds of wildlife. Raccoons, seals, herons. I just had an owl overnight a couple weeks ago that was hit by a car and the recovery center was closed so I had to keep him overnight and then transport him to the vet in the morning and get him x-rayed and I'm that girl that I drive around with a net and five different size boxes and blankets and towels in my truck just in case <laughs> I get a call. So I do a lot of reading up on them and, and um, learning about wildlife and animals so you know, cougars, you, you make yourself appear larger and you don't back away, you just stay there and sort of be the dominant one. And um, now what do I do? And my mind was going through all sorts of sort of plans of action. Do I pick up a rock and throw it? No, you don't want to bend down in front of a cougar. You know, you don't want to appear any shorter than you are. And and then I was thinking, okay, can I could clap my hands. But then I thought, then my dog's going to think something's up and he's going to start acting funny and I, what can I do here? So that's when I just started, you know, talking calmly to him and I said, you're a bad kitty, you're a bad kitty, go on now and just kind of <laughs> calmly tried to encourage him to leave. Get out of here. Come on. Bad kitty. I thought, okay, so he is not afraid of me and he's still looking at me. You little bastard. Things are you know, going here. okay. I'm holding my own here, but um, could go either way at this point. And then I thought, what's the most human, scary sound that I can sort of make at this point? And then I thought, oh, on my phone, I can play some heavy metal. And then I thought, what song? And I 
I opened and I, st I went, actually when I was looking through my phone, I was careful. I didn't even want to put my head down to look at my phone. So I still had my phone sort of up in front of me while I was scrolling through because I didn't want to look like I was getting, you know, lower to the ground at all. Just, I have a lot of uh, mellower stuff too. I have a lot of metal, but I have a lot of um, like, uh, I don't know, what was there, like Jack Johnson and <laughs> you know things like that, that I'm going, oh, that's not going to work, not going to work. And then I scrolled through and when I saw Metallica, Don't Tread on Me, I thought that is exactly the message I need. That intro for that song in particular, it kind of starts with a punch in the face, like the, just the way that the beat goes, it's, it starts out loud. So <laughs> I... I chose that song and made sure my volume was up as high as my little iPhone would go. And I hit play and uh, the first first few notes of the intro and he was gone. He just turned sideways and took right off. I felt empowered when I played it and he ran away. I was like, oh yeah, take that, you know? And then I just, I kind of had it in my hand and I felt safe having it, that it was it was there and then I've been out there a few times since and um, I've I've thought about you know what I would do again and I think I would do the same thing it's just it's so great because nobody got hurt I didn't get hurt the cougar didn't get killed you know there was no bad story here like there was nothing horrible that happened it was an it was a pretty cool experience and and I actually uh, I heard that the don't tread on me sales went up 1500 percent um, following my story going viral. Well, a Vancouver Island woman's heavy metal moment is going viral. She was out on a hike with her dog when a cougar began stalking them. When yelling didn't I've been in Metallica band since I was probably about 13. Metallica was my, my all-time favorite. It would just be like a daily, <laughs> a daily thing. You come home, you have a fight with your parents, you crank up Metallica, you know? <laughs> I had got a message on Messenger from the artist liaison for Metallica, and she said one of the band members would like to reach out to you. Could I please have your contact information? And Kirk Hammett had posted a link to my story on his page, and so I thought it was going to be him. And then, I, so I gave her my contact information. I was super excited. and. And then I was at work sitting there and uh, this number came in and it was a long distance number I didn't recognize. And I answered it and this voice said, hi, Denise, this is James Hetfield of Metallica. <laughs> and uh, if I had known that, that he would have called me <laughs> when I was 13, I literally would have had a heart attack. I wouldn't even have been able to speak to him because he's, uh, he was so much my idol. <laughs> And so all the, the Metallica fans out there are, are happy about that. You know, they, they've all reached out to me on Facebook, <laughs> you know. Um, I had a lady call me and she had absolutely debilitating PTSD and she used to go hiking with her dogs all the time and she stopped going out of fear of cougars. And she saw my story. She, it struck a chord with her. She downloaded some heavy metal and went for a hike with her dogs that day. So she was thanking me for giving her sort of uh, a push to go out and get out into the wilderness again. We'll be right back. So earlier, we heard about LL Bean's assortment of holiday gifts and how hard it is to keep them around if anyone else sees you getting those gifts. Because L.L. Bean makes the softest flannel shirts and the most luxurious shearling-lined slippers. 
and there's just nothing like their water repellent down outerwear on a blustery fall day. So this year, you have a choice. You and your family can wander around the house, bump into each other in the kitchen, and step on each other's toes in the living room. Or you can be an outsider at LLBean.com. Our next story offers a very different take on the intersection of hard rock and the wild. It comes from Mishka Shivali, a professional musician who spent time touring with the Strokes, the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, and the Decemberists, among other artists. He also writes and performs his own music, and he's a talented comedian, as will be obvious when you listen to his experience of being shipwrecked, which he performed at an event hosted by The Moth. If you don't know The Moth, you should. They're live storytelling events of people sharing true tales without notes to audiences around the world. Mishka's was featured in The Moth's awesome podcast. One quick editing note. We've updated this recording to eliminate an offensive term that we should have caught and edited out from the beginning. Thanks to the listeners who wrote in and told us about it. Please welcome Mishka Shivali. I was fast asleep when the disaster struck. We hit with a deep tearing crash of such sustained violence, I I felt the entire boat shudder under me like a wounded animal. I tried to jump out of my bunk, but the boat flopped over on its side, threw me against the wall, and then back into my bunk. And the cabin filled with noise. I could hear boards twisting and squealing against each other. I could hear the boat grinding against the rocks. I could hear the crew yelling and shouting questions. I, I, I knew I had to find uh, John, Captain Peter's 89-year-old father. <laughs> and he wasn't in the bunk across from me, and he wasn't on the floor. So he had to be in the, in the front bunk. I, I called his name twice, and he didn't respond. So I carefully climbed out of my bunk and moved forward into the darkness, deeper into the ruined boat. Spring of 2001, I just graduated college. My friend Jacob had just shot his final speedball and died on his kitchen floor. And my drinking was spiraling out of control. Uh, I've been working with Jacob to try and keep him clean, even as I was drinking drinking before class in the mornings. Um, You know, just a medicinal amount to get rid of the shakes and the chills and the sweats. Um, and then after we graduated, we played phone tag and, and lost touch. You know, he was trying to keep normal hours and I was staying up till 8 a.m. drinking and doing coke. <laughs> I, I didn't have a cell phone at the time, just a crappy pager. And, uh, the day after he died, my pager delivered a voicemail from the other side. Uh, hey, what's up, man? It's Jake. Just calling. Um, just trying to catch up with you. Um, all right, I'll, I'll talk to you soon. I remember sitting at my kitchen table, drinking straight from the bottle, playing that message over and over again, searching for a clue, an explanation, a reason. I, I wanted to die, but my mother had explicitly forbidden suicide. <laughs> so <laughs> I jumped at the chance to crew on a, a dangerous sailing trip from the Dominican Republic up to uh, Florida. I thought it was a good compromise. When, when I got to John's bunk, a, a shaft of light came through one of the scupper holes, and I, I saw a, a tangle of limbs like a pile of firewood, and my heart dropped. And I reached out, and I grabbed something. John, I said, yes? 
Peter's father had slept through the entire thing. Se- several, uh, several equipment failures, a navigational error, and a storm had put us on the uninhabited point of an island in the Bahamas in the middle of the night. Uh, we got everybody safely on shore, but it was a bleak scene. Uh, Captain Peter's boat, his life's work, and his home of the last 20 years ruined on the rocks. And the five of us stranded there with limited, uh, limited amount of water, and nobody knew we were in trouble. Uh, we shot off flares and radioed for help, and then when nobody came, we just got wasted on some shitty red wine and passed out on the beach. <laughs> Peter woke me in the morning when the sun rose. He had been there several years earlier, and he knew uh, Matthewtown, the island's lone settlement, was a short 25 miles away. So he was going to hike that 25 miles to go and get help. I think I surprised both of us by saying that I would go. Uh, Mishka, I, I'm the captain. The captain always stays with the ship. <laughs> it's my responsibility. Your responsibility is here with the ship. I can't let you go. Dude, it, whenever I say something serious, I have to preface it with dude. <laughs> dude, no offense, but you're old. <laughs> And you have Parkinson's, and you have a family. I'm younger, I'm faster, I'm stronger, and I'm expendable. I'm going. I took my share of the water, one gallon, some peanuts, and a couple of multivitamins my mother had forced on me before I left. (laughs) I said, if I'm not back by this time tomorrow, send someone else. The beach was littered with trash, and right away I found a, uh, a hard hat. So I ripped up the rotting webbing out of it and put it on my head backwards to protect my head and my neck from the sun. I, I'd been wearing a t-shirt, shorts, and running shoes when the boat wrecked, but um, they'd all gotten soaked. So I was wearing a long sleeve white button-down, my boxer shorts, <laughs> and the final humiliation, socks and sandals. <laughs> Ladies... <laughs> The the shoreline unfolded in a series of deep coves, so I found myself covering twice the ground I wanted to. And after crawling through several mangrove swamps, I decided it would just be easier to, you know, to walk point to point through the shallow water. I mean, you know, I knew I had to be careful because if I twisted an ankle or something, they'd just be finding my bones years later. I mean, I knew there were sharks. Um, We'd been fishing off the back of the boat, and it seemed like every other fish that we caught, we lost to sharks. You'd have something on the line, and then all of a sudden it would go slack, and you'd pull up a huge fish head just gushing blood. And you could tell from the bite radius that it wasn't a little shark. <laughs> um, but that was how it'd see. And, you know, so, so I took off my sandals, and I took off my socks, and then in less than two feet of water, I want to say it was a 12-foot, like maybe 12 feet. It was probably closer to seven feet but that's still a pretty fucking big shark <laughs> to come upon when you're walking into the water. Thank God it was dead, just rocking with the motion of the waves. <laughs> but if it was dead, then why couldn't I smell it? So I took a rock and sort of chucked it at the shark. It thumped the shark on the back. It thrashed wildly and then headed out for deeper water. So I decided to stick to the shore after that. I took a couple of multivitamins and a handful of peanuts to get over the hangover, you know. And, but it, it, it just made me thirstier, so I, I didn't eat anything else after that. And, uh, I, you know, I mean, I was already starting 
incredibly dehydrated and, uh, <laughs> and even holding off drinking until like my throat was parched and my lips were dry. I was already like down to half of my water before I knew it. And there was no place to stop and rest. There was no shade. You know, I would just, I would be cooked. Um, so I, you know, I, I kept going as my, as my water diminished and my condition degraded. Um, I made, I obsessed over these murky calculations. I knew that each step I took brought me closer to Matthew Town, and each step also used up some of my dwindling energy and brought me closer to zero. Now, I knew I'd made significant progress because I'd been walking for, well, I didn't have a watch, so I didn't know how long I'd been walking. <laughs> but either way, my water was getting incredibly low, and... Uh, and I knew that regardless of what my destination was, salvation or the other thing, that I was getting closer. As, the, uh, as my sunstroke kicked in, <laughs> I laughed, I sang, I talked to myself. I, uh, start, I started to confuse shadows with water. So I would walk, right, walk wide around a puddle only to walk through a shadow that somehow got my feet wet. And the, the noise I heard, it was, it was my, my breath or it was the wind or the waves. It was, uh, it was a woman's voice cooing in my ear. It was several women laughing at me. It was a crowd cheering for me or booing me. It was a boat. It was an entire fleet of boats coming to my rescue. I, I had wanted to be test on this trip to see what I could do, if I could do anything, but I was ready for it to be over. I, um, I approached the point of one of those endless coves, and I, I willed Matthew Town to appear on the other side. You know, uh, crappy little gas station, hostile locals, uh, understocked, overpriced grocery store, melting popsicles. But when I came around the corner, there was just sand and sea and mangroves. And I fell on my face in the sand and I cried. I was 24 years old and what had I done with my life? <laughs> I calculatedly drank as much as I could get away with at my job without getting fired. I had sponged unconscionable amounts of coke off of friends and strangers. I had repeatedly cheated on my girlfriend and I'd abandoned my friend Jacob in his time of need. It seemed like I had spent all my time either jerking off or hungover or jerking off while hungover. And now I was going to die here alone on this sun-bleached rock, my life almost completely unlived. I cried for the songs that, that I'd written but not recorded and now people wouldn't remember me for. And I cried for all the fucked up shit that I had done that now would be the only thing that people would remember me for. I cried because I was never going to see my mother's hands again. I love you, Mom. You're number one. <laughs> so, sitting in the sand, staring up at the sky, I made one last desperate calculation. The sun was directly overhead. So, worst case scenario, I maybe covered only 15 or 16 miles, which meant I had 10 miles to go. I had a, about a cup of water left, and my body was shutting down. Now, I read all those corny, macho survival books where they say you can survive by drinking your own pee. <laughs> so I'd held it all day long, but I knew I couldn't hold it for much longer. 
So the moment of truth, preserve my dignity and pee in the sand and lose all that moisture when I maybe had 10 miles to go, or recycle it and maybe live to tell the fucked up story. I, I th it's funny, you know, it's only when you're facing death that your filthy truck stop bathroom of a life becomes so precious to you. <laughs> I, uh, I thought about my friend Jacob and I thought about that last fix that he took and, you know, I wondered if, like, did he know that something was going wrong? Did he see his death naked laid out in front of him like I saw mine? And was he scared? because I was scared shitless. But I knew that people were counting on me. I knew that Peter and John and the rest of the crew, they were depending on me. And I thought of the looks on their faces when they saw me on the decks of a Coast Guard cutter going in to rescue them. So I took off my construction helmet and I unleashed a hot bladder full of brown multivitamin enriched urine. <laughs> I mean, it fucking glowed like it was radioactive. <laughs> With shaking hands, I lifted the helmet to my lips, and I choked down as much of my own hot, salty pee as I could stomach without puking, and then took a, a, a couple of tiny, desperate sips of the water that I had left just to wash the taste out of my mouth. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to drink out of a punch bowl, <laughs> but it's not an entirely efficient process. So it was like dribbling out of the corners of my mouth and like off, it was a fucking horror show. <laughs> but you know, after the wave of nausea passed, I felt great. <laughs> 10 miles, 20 miles, 50 miles, I didn't care. I drank my pee, I had what it took to survive and I was gonna make it home. Less than five minutes later, I was rescued. <laughs> A group of biologists were out banding turtles. <laughs> and this was the last day of their study. And because it was the 4th of July, they almost didn't come out. Peter's estimate had been wrong, and I had walked 30 miles, and I was still 25 miles away from civilization. So when they brought me to the Coast Guard station, I, I told the Coast Guard right away, I said, listen, we got four American sailors shipwrecked on the northernmost point of the island. There's one of them is 89, and two of them require medication. Almost instantly, I could hear a helicopter starting up, and it sounded awesome. <laughs> Just then, a call came in from the Bahamian Defense Patrol. They had just picked up four shipwrecked sailors on the northernmost point of the island, and they had sent one of their group off to go and get help, and he'd never been picked up. And they wanted the Coast Guard to get a helicopter. The dispatcher looked, <laughs> gave me a funny look, and spoke into his radio. I think we got him. <laughs> they got me a shower. They gave me this T-shirt. <laughs> One guy made me a sandwich, two slices of white Wonder Bread, one piece of bologna, one piece of American cheese, yellow mustard, and lots of mayonnaise. 
it was the best sandwich I've ever tasted. <laughs> so it turned out that about an hour after, uh, after Peter had sent me off, he realized that the force of the impact had disconnected the antenna from the radio. So he fixed the radio, radioed for help, got the Bahamian Defense Patrol <laughs> right away. They'd been safe for hours. <laughs> so I got shipwrecked. I walked 30 miles in the blazing hot sun. I drank my own pee. And all I got was this lousy T-shirt. <laughs> In no way am I a hero. I couldn't save Jacob, and I didn't save Peter or John or the rest of the crew. But I saved myself. And I guess that's got to be enough. That was Mishka Shivali speaking at a live storytelling event hosted by The Moth. Find out more about their gatherings and their podcast at themoth.com. And you can learn about Mishka Shivali's work at his website, mishkashivali.com. Denise Gallant's story was produced by Alex Ward, with music by Robbie Carver, Goran Andrik, and most notably, Metallica, which is headlining five cougar-free festivals in 2020. Get details and buy tickets at MetallicaXX.com. This episode of The Outside Podcast was brought to you by L.L. Bean, which knows what the people in your life want for gifts this holiday season, to be cozy. So get them what they want at LLBean.com. L.L. Bean, be an outsider. We'll be back next week.